Years ago, I heard the story of a preacher who had a bold voice like Brother Sasser does, and uh, he didn't need a microphone. You could hear him all over the building, and uh, he was conducting a gospel meeting in a place that had a, had a large podium, and it sort of wrapped around the preacher like this, and as he was preaching, he got more fired up, more excited about his lesson, and the brethren were saying amen. That made him even more excited. He got even more uh, a little bit more loud and began waving his hands. A little boy sitting down on the front, his eyes got real big as he watched this preacher. And the little boy turned to his mama and said, Mama, what are we going to do if he gets out of the box? <laughs> and uh, I've always tried to stay behind the box. It's a lot easier for people to hear me. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Proverbs chapter 3. I want to express my appreciation to the elders for the invitation to be with you tonight we're really enjoying living in mississippi uh, this has really been an unusual summer has it not uh, we arrived here about july the 19th had about a week of warm weather and then you had about two weeks well we had because i was here we had about two or three weeks of unusually cool weather and I was telling folks, man, if it is like this in Mississippi in August, I'm going to stay here. <laughs> and everybody said, no, this is a fluke, and it's not going to last. And it didn't, but it never really got real hot. And so uh, hadn't been for global warming, we might have really been in trouble, wouldn't we? <laughs> Solomon wrote the book of uh, Proverbs, at, last, at least most of the Proverbs, uh, I think from a life of experience. I like to think that of the three, uh, the three books that Solomon wrote, which is the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and then uh, the book of Proverbs, that they were written at different periods in his life. I think perhaps Proverbs was written at a, at a very early age in his life, and uh, he, he uh, was manifesting some of the wisdom that he had prayed that God would give unto him. And then as he slowly drifted off into sin and eventually came out of that, I think perhaps during the time of his sin, his sinful life, he wrote the book Song of Solomon because Song of Solomon, in my estimation, is a view of, of, of Solomon and his life from a very sensual standpoint. There are actually three characters in Song of Solomon. One of these is the king, one of them is the Shulamite woman, and the other is the Shulamite woman's beloved. I don't believe that's the king, but that's another study in and of itself. Ecclesiastes was written, I think, toward the end of Solomon's life. And I think he looked back on his life in regret. I think he looked back at all the things that he had tried and he came to the conclusion that all was vanity if you leave God out of the picture. That's the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. Things as they appear under the sun, without God, from a materialistic standpoint. And as he brings Ecclesiastes to a close in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, he said, Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole of man. The King James, the American Standard, they insert the word duty in that verse, and it's italicized in most translations, but the italicized word means it just wasn't in the original. 
What Solomon was saying was the whole of man, the very essence of man is to serve God and keep His commandments. And if we do not do that, we're robbing ourselves of a great life, of what God really intended for us to have. We were doing mission work in Ukraine back in the late 1990s, and we had just established the church in Poltava, Ukraine. We were working very closely with uh, Gary Workman, and uh, Gary did not have his, uh, the city of Poltava on his, his visa. We happened to have it on ours, so Gary got run out of the city very quickly. And we stayed there, and in about three to four weeks, we baptized our first members into the body of Christ in Paul Taba, which was five women and one gentleman. We stayed there and labored through the winter, and as our, our time was drawing to a close, we had already started reaching out into different uh, neighborhoods in Paul Taba, and we came across a group that called themselves uh, the Independent Church, if I remember correctly. They weren't associated with any mainline denomination, but they were meeting together in some village outside of Poltava, and they invited myself and our interpreter and Johnny Ann and, and others to come out and to be with them. And we went out and we studied two or three hours. I thought, surely, surely we would make some progress. Uh, I don't know how that turned out. Uh, we didn't stay that much longer. But nonetheless, as we were getting ready to leave that meeting in that village, uh, attended by young and old alike, there were some very interested teenagers there who were asking questions. And one of the ladies said, can you give us a verse that will give some kind of encouragement to our young people? And so I referred to the passage in 1 Peter chapter three where the apostle Peter said, he that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Uh, from evil. And the, the thrust of Peter's uh, admonition was, if you want to have a happy life, if you want to have a well-balanced life, you have to put God into your life. Isn't that what Solomon said? If you want to have a meaningful life, you have to have God in the center of that life. Proverbs chapter 3 lends itself, the whole chapter lends itself as a great chapter on how to have a balanced life, how to really enjoy life. I don't know if Solomon uh, wrote these uh, Proverbs in this chapter with the intention of, of actually pursuing that thought but it certainly lends itself to it. So we're going to look at chapter 3 as time allows. I'm not confident that we're going to get all the way through the chapter. So there will be some parts that I'll cut rather short, and I'll just make some brief comments. But I want to concentrate on the first three points more in depth than maybe I do the rest of the chapter. So what we're doing tonight is we're asking Solomon what do we have to do to really have an enjoyable life? His first three verses, uh, actually the first four verses, are an introduction to the rest of the chapter. And when you read the first four verses, see if you don't get the impression that what Solomon is saying is, if you'll listen to my commandments, if you'll do what I tell you to do, that means a father to his son, the application is God to his children, that what he's saying, if you'll do it, life will be rich. But it takes the application of that. Read with me the first four verses in Proverbs chapter 3. My son, forget not my law, 
But let thy heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace will they, will they add to thee. Let not kindness and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck, write them upon the tablet of thy heart, and so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and men. You see, when Jesus developed as he was growing up, Luke tells us that he matured in various ages in favor with God and man. And Jesus had a very well-balanced life, did he not? His was the perfect life. Solomon is saying the same thing here. If you really want to have a good life, then heed my advice. Let's talk about point number one. At the top of the list, it's no accident that Solomon says, if you want to have a good life, you've got to trust in God. You've got to trust in God. That has to be right at the top. And thus, the passage that was read for our hearing tonight, trust in the Lord thy God with all thy heart and lean not upon thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. Now let's take that, that, that statement he's just made. Let's flip it over and see what the alternative is in verses 7, 8, and 9. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear Jehovah and depart from evil. It will be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. What's he saying? You can either trust in God or you can reject God. You can trust in God or you can trust your own feelings. And really in the final analysis, that's what life encompasses. There are those who put their trust in God. And there are those who don't put their trust in God. Those who put their trust in God are blessed, and those who don't are not blessed. And in the final analysis, when eternity arrives, what will really have been the most important thing in life? Will it be the automobile that you owned, or the house you lived in, or the clothes you wore, or the country you lived in? None of that will have any bearing a hundred years from now. The only thing that will matter is whether or not I trusted in God. Now let's take those verses that were read and let's break these down and get some subpoints, if we will, that I think are very practical and uh, worth considering. There's the word trust, trust. That's dependence commanded. Solomon doesn't say, here's some advice. I suggest to you, maybe you ought to do this. It's a command. It's an imperative verb. Solomon is saying, trust in the Lord. And trust means that you rely upon what he says without any questions asked whatsoever. I had the opportunity to acquire my pilot's license back in the 1970s. I haven't flown in maybe 30 years now, maybe 25. But one thing that was impressed upon our mind in flight school was you always trust the instruments. You always trust the instruments. And as we were training, our instructor would take us up and he would put this, this blind mask where you couldn't see out of the windows. All you could see was the instrument panel in front of you. And he would take the plane and he would put it in all kinds of gyrations and, and different uh, positions. And then he would lift the mask where I could see the instrument panel and he would say, now level the plane out. You would feel like you were doing this, or maybe doing this, or maybe banking to the right, or maybe banking to the left, and you would look at the instrument panel, and the first thought is, something's wrong with the instrument panel. But it's not. And I'm glad that I trusted in that, because it wasn't a year later when we rented an airplane to fly to my wife's parents for a Thanksgiving dinner 
and we arrived in an airport to the north of them at night. And as we were making that trip, we passed Gainesville, Texas, and I turned to the west toward the airport where I wanted to go, and out in front of me was nothing but darkness, nothing but darkness. And my wife said, it sure is dark out there. And I said, well, that's because it's country. And all of a sudden, we were engulfed in a cloud and the strobe lights going off around me. We got confused. She got worried. The kids were just having a great time in the back seat as we were bouncing around. And I looked down at my instruments, and I felt like I was climbing. I felt like I was climbing, but I was in a dive this way. I was banking to the left and going down. Had I pushed that yoke forward, I would have put that plane into a steep dive. You have to trust in the instruments. You have to trust in God if you're going to have a balanced life. And yet one of the hardest scriptures that I think brethren have come to realize the truth of it and to make practical application is that one in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He was talking about the sustenance of life, our clothing, our shelter, our food. He said they will be provided. But I could sit here and I could start enumerating individuals that I have counseled with and I have taught and we have begged with and we have pled with with regard to their attendance who take jobs on Sunday that completely gets them out of touch with the church. I'm not talking about emergency situations. I'm not talking about those who have to work maybe one time out of the month as emergency personnel. The rest of their life demonstrates great characteristics, great Christian characteristics. I'm talking about those who intentionally take on a career that they know will interfere with their service to God. Why don't they trust God? I challenged a man one time. He was in a business. I just moved to the congregation, and he was in a business he didn't own the business, he was just simply hired, that really was quite questionable. And I began talking with him and counseling him. I'd say, a Christian cannot be involved in this. He was willing to learn, anxious to learn. It finally reached the point where he said, I'm thinking about resigning my job. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. He said, but I can't stay here. I'll trust in God. He resigned his job on a Friday. He did not have a job in front of him, had no opportunities. Monday morning, he was called by the local hospital to hire on as a, just a technician, just a cleanup man. And over the years, he progressed in position and eventually had a great job. And he always, every time he would see me, he would say, thank you for telling me to trust in God. It's a, it's, it's a responsibility. Look at the next one, the object of that trust. Trust in Jehovah. Trust in the Lord thy God. Men trust in their material things. They trust in philosophy. They trust in their education. Our nation trusts in humanism right now. We are a humanistic society. We ceased being a Christian nation years ago. It doesn't mean that the influence is not still there, for it is. But those who are in positions of power, they trust in humanism. They trust in evolution. They trust in their education. They trust in their military. And it frightens me when I hear leaders in our country that talk about how great our country is, how powerful our country is, how much weaponry we have, and I seldom hear our leaders say, we need to turn back to God. 
You know what the last time any president acknowledged that America had sinned was? It was when Dwight D. Eisenhower was president. That's been a long time ago. We need to trust in Jehovah, not our money, not our materialism, not our military might, but trust in Jehovah. There's something else about this. I also see the degree of this trust when you look at, at, at verse 5. Trust in the Lord thy God with all thy heart. With all thy heart. Is he talking about this muscle here that pumps this blood through my body? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the biblical heart. And you define the biblical heart by seeing what it does in Scripture. The biblical heart is that which believes. Do you remember when the Ethiopian eunuch uh, was contacted by Philip, and Philip preached unto him Christ, and they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That's the intellect. That's believing. That's knowing. That's thinking. But that's not all that the heart does. The heart is also the center of my willpower. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, Thanks be to God that whereas you were servants of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of doctrine whereunto you were delivered. The heart includes the willpower. It includes the intellect, but it also includes the willpower. But that's not all the heart does. The heart consists of the emotion as well. Paul, in writing to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, he said, My heart's desire is that all Israel may be saved. That was his heart's emotion, his desire. Now, if you think about those three areas, the intellect and the will and the emotion, and then you read that into this passage right here, trust in the Lord thy God, first of all, with your intellect. You don't deviate from His Word. You don't try to substitute what His Word says. You take His Word for exactly what it teaches. You recognize it's the all-sufficient Word that guides us and teaches us, that gives us everything that pertains to life and to godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. But to trust in the Lord with the willpower, the will part of man, is to surrender my will to Him without any questions. I have to make sure that I'm listening to His Word and I know it, and then when He commands, I act without, without questioning. One of the greatest obstacles that the religious world has with regard to baptism is they question it. Why do I need to do this? Why does anybody need to do this? It's so humbling. It's so humiliating. It is, but God said to do it, and we do it simply because He told us to do it. He's directed our worship. He's told us what it takes to be saved. He's told us what makes up the church. He tells me what I am to do with regard to morals, and I have to surrender my will to that without any doubts, without any questions, in explicit trust. That's the degree and when I hold back my intellect and I fail to study, or I hold back my will and surrender, it seems to me I'm not trusting God with all my heart. It has to be the full essence of man that's given to him. There's something else in this admonition to trust, and that is that there is a dangerous departure that Solomon warns us about in the last part of verse 5. Lean not upon thine own understanding. 
Now, Solomon is not saying that when you study the Scripture and you come to understand what it means, don't trust your conclusion. That's not what he's saying. I actually had a preacher one time tell me, he said, uh, what Solomon is saying is you can study and be as smart as you want in the Scriptures, but don't trust your conclusion. And I asked him, I said, do you trust that conclusion? You see how foolish men act sometimes? It's what I call sophisticated silliness. They back themselves into a corner. What Solomon was saying is, don't try to go off on your own. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. I have to make sure that I, that I lean upon his word. And once I've studied it, and I've come to a conclusion on it, trust in that. doesn't mean you necessarily will be right you keep an open mind and an open heart but there are some things we can know and do know even though there are some things we may not know so trust in the Lord thy God don't lean upon your own understanding and then there's one other thing there is the, the, the demonstration of that of that trust in all thy ways acknowledge him in all thy ways you mean Solomon I have to give up this over here in all thy ways acknowledge it. You mean I can't hold on to this one little vice? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. I had a study in Oklahoma when I was doing local work up there with the husband of one of our members. They were wealthy, very wealthy. Uh, they owned a huge uh, horse farm. I mean, they, they bred thoroughbreds, uh, expensive horses. I happened to get a study with him. We went out to his house. We studied, had one study, maybe in a half an hour or so into the study. And he said, Tom, let me ask you a question. How much of all this am I going to have to give up if I become a Christian? And I said, you're going to have to give it all up. And I could see the wheels turning in his mind. And I said, but God may give you back more than you ever give up. But you have to be willing to give all of it up. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And if it runs contrary to the will of God, I have to be willing to turn my back on it. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And then you have a, uh, not only the, uh, the demonstration, but you have a, a, um, a, pr a promise, a reward that's given. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct thy paths. At the top of the list then, what do you have? Trust. You have to trust God. Now here's the second point tonight. Close behind trusting God is honoring God. If you'll look at verses, seven, verses 9 and 10, here's what Solomon writes. Honor Jehovah with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase, and so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy bat shall overflow with new wine. When God wants a man, he wants the man. But he knows he gets to the man through the things that surround that man's life. And he wants us to surrender those things. And here he's saying, here's a person that trusts in God, and the next step is to honor him. How do you honor him? So many times in the Scripture, when it comes to money matters, our Lord commended those who gave in the proper way. Take the widow's mite, for example, the widow who gave her two mites. He was standing at the temple. He was observing these Pharisees who were casting in great amounts of money out of their superfluity and yet she was giving out of her want 
she was willing to surrender everything she had to the Lord, even though it was the last might that she had because she wanted to honor God. The Pharisees weren't honoring God. One of the greatest problems that we have in the brotherhood, and I speak this out of experience, brethren, because I have traveled to numerous congregations seeking aid in our mission endeavor, and one of the greatest problems we have is getting congregations to let go of money for mission work. They'll let go of money for great projects and huge edifices, and we've built our edifices and put ourselves into debt. But so often, so often we miss sight of what God wants us to really surrender to. I visited a congregation one time. They, were, they had gone through a split. They were in a building about this size right here. They were down to about 100 in attendance. It was, the building was less than 10 years old. And they had a, what Cleon Lyles calls a scoreboard hanging on the wall, sort of like uh, this over here. And it showed the contribution. And they had a little thing at the bottom that said building fund, $150,000 in the building fund. And I asked one of the elders, I said, why are you collecting a building fund? Are you having some need for massive repair? He said, no. He said, the building's in great shape. He said, uh, we're just anticipating a, a large problem. I'd been out there one or two times, and that night as I was preaching, I pointed to that building fund, and I said, brethren, there are souls starving in India. We need money to support preachers. You need to empty that building fund out and get on with doing the Lord's work. I never was invited back to that congregation. <laughs> But do you see the point? How is our giving? How does our giving honor God? And by what we give and the purpose for which we give, how does that speak with regard to what's inside of us? You see, honor the Lord thy God, how? With thy substance. You have it in your capability to give. You need to be surrendering that to the Lord and to His will. And I guarantee you, He will bless you richly. He'll give you back more than you can ever give. Listen, you cannot outgive God. You cannot do it. Archie Looper owned a chain of grocery stores in California. I don't know if any of you ever heard of him or not. And Archie Looper decided one day, prior to his death some years back, he decided that he was going to give every penny of profit that he made to the Lord that year. He had a banner year, and he made more in profits than he'd ever made before. He decided next year he was going to give it all back to God. God blessed him with even greater income. You cannot outgive God. That's a promise that he makes to us. Let's move a little bit further. You have this honoring God then, and then as you move down to the third point, this is in verses 11 and following, he says you now need to submit to the Lord. You need to give in to his chastening. And as I think about those three points, trust in the Lord, honor the Lord, and then submit to his chastening, it's, there's a logical format in that, is there not? Now, read, if you will, beginning with verse 11. Let's just read two or three verses. My son, despise not the chastening of Jehovah, neither be weary of his reproof. For whom Jehovah loveth, he reproveth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. I think there's a corollary or similarity, maybe, between the chastening that God brings into our lives and the chastening that we as parents give to our children. 
And probably all of you have been in a situation where you've seen the typical unruly child in the supermarket. He's riding in a cart, his mama is pushing the cart, he's pulling everything he can off the shelf, screaming to his mama, give me this, give me that. There's no discipline exercised at all. By the time he gets out of the cart and he can walk, he's just getting what he wants to off the shelf. I was shopping at the local Walmart here in Olive Branch and there was a young boy taking everything he wanted off the shelf, throwing it on the ground, stepping in on his, with his feet and smashing it. And his mother just kept saying, now you need to quit that, you just need to stop it and just leaving the aisle littered with broken items. She was ashamed to his mother. He was ashamed to his mother, was he not? I want you to look at some passages with me. Turn over to chapter 22 and verse 6. The proverb writer, in fact, in numerous cases, he talks about disciplining children. Verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he'll not depart from it. There may be some exceptions to that, but that's a, that's a general rule. Turn over to chapter 22 and look, if you will, at verse 15 in the same chapter. He says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. I think that was my father's favorite scripture in all the Bible. There's another one that I think he really liked. This is over in chapter 29 and verse 15 where it talks about the father disciplining the child. The rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself causeth shame to his mother. You need to be careful here. It's the rod of correction. It's not the rod of emotional upset, of someone being emotionally upset. He's not talking about beating a child physically with a rod because you're angry at him. He's talking about using the rod of correction, which is God's Word. Now, sometimes it calls for a leather strap, doesn't it? But there's still that discipline that needs to be exercised. Now, let's superimpose that over God's care for us. Why is this happening in my life? Why isn't God blessing me? Why is it that trials and tribulations seem to be coming my way? James said, count it all joy when you fall into manifold temptation. Why? Because that temptation, those trials work patience. It helps me to grow and to mature in Christ. And God will never place anything upon me that I am unable to bear. But as I trust in God, and then as I honor God, I need to submit to His chastening. Do all things without murmuring. He's not going to put you in the fire so far that it destroys you, but He may allow us to go through the fire to strengthen us. When Peter wrote his two epistles, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, there was a fiery storm coming at the early Christians. They were going to be persecuted severely. And Peter wrote in advance of that and admonished them on a number of occasions to be faithful when that fiery trial comes their way. I don't, I don't like to think of myself as a pessimist, brethren. I like to think of myself as an, op, as, as an optimist. But I like to also think I'm a realistic optimist. I see nothing on the horizon that can change the direction this country is going. And with the anti-Christian sentiment, things are only going to get worse unless there is a national repentance and our nation turns back to God. Now the question is, are you and I ready to go through that fiery trial when it gets here? And God will then prune the bushes, so to speak, and only the faithful will remain. Be praying that you'll maintain that faithfulness. Let's look down at the next point very quickly, verses 13 and following. 
I'm just going to touch on, on some thoughts in, in this. But in verses 13 and following, I think what Solomon is, well, 13 through 26, Solomon is saying, now that everything is place, in place, you trust God, you honor God, you submit to, his, to his, his chastisement, now what you need to do is to start seeking His will. Start looking, start searching. Uh, actually, that should have started prior to that, but you're, you're looking, you're searching, and you keep doing that. And 13 through 26 is sort of like an aside. It's where Solomon says, I've been telling you these, these responsibilities. Now let me just real quick touch on some things you're going to get out of this. You're going to get happiness, verses 13 and 14. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. You're going to get longevity of life, verse 16. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. You're going to get serenity. Look at verse 17. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. You're going to have access to the tree of life. Verse 18. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. You're going to get stability as he describes God laying things, the foundation of the earth. And the stability that comes with God, that's in verses 19 through 20. You're going to get security, verses 23 through 26. You see, what God does is He's pouring out His heart to us through Solomon. And He's saying, I want you to be happy. I want you to have a balanced life. And if you'll trust in God, and then if you will honor God, and then if you will submit to His chastisement and His directions through His Word, Look what he's going to pour out on you. No wonder Paul would say to the Philippians, I've learned whatever state I'm in, therein to be content. Doesn't matter what comes at us. That contentment can be yours. Well, we're out of time. I would spend some time studying 27 through the close of the chapter as application. Because there's where the rubber meets the road. He says we're to be a beneficent people, we're to be a peaceable people, we're to be a contented people. But that's the application. That's when I learn what the truth is, I apply it to my life. If you're not a child of God tonight, let me, let me beseech you. Trust in God, listen to His commandments. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be buried with your Lord in baptism. Trust in that. He will take care of you and then live faithful till death and heaven will be your home. If you've done that, but you've ceased to trust in God, maybe you've lost sight of, of what it means to hold fast to His hand, let the brethren pray in your hand. Be restored to active duty. But by all means, take advantage of the opportunity while it's here, as together we stand and as we sing.